The Aqua Cave presents WCW Must Die. Starring Conan. Go play with yourself. Samurai Cop. Who's got the mace? Buff Bagwell. Yeah, my whole life is pretty much a show. Franchise Shane Douglas. <laughs> you just got your ass franchised. David Arquette. I was the heavyweight champion of the world! Mike Awesome. Yeah, the crippled canyon. Canyon? Yeah, I got thrown off that cage. And it hurt. Terry Funk. Oh, Blue! Daddy's coming home! Chris Candido. But there's no Macho Man! Tammy. How about I show you mine? And you owe me one. Mike Tanay. Show us, Tammy! Vampiro. Yeah, you know, Steve. The actor. Big T. The juice. Indistinct! Mean Gene Oberlin. Someone find me Eric Bischoff. DDP. Yo, turn the camera off, monkey. Scott Hudson. It's at the top of the hour, Tony, for Pete's sake! David Flair. This is Champ's room. Andrew McCarthy. Vincent. I've got an idea, Vincent. Norman Smiley. This is my business. The cat. May I please have your attention, please? Lex Luger. Come on, do more. Total package style. Jeff Jarrett. Who died and made you, Commissioner Slappy? Tony Schiavone. The greatest athlete in the history of our sport. It's Sting! Mark Madden. I was wrong. I apologize. Sting. The actor. I feel like romping, stomping, graveyard destruction. Rick Fleer as Rick Flair. Not your dad. Eric Bischoff. What's the matter, Sid? Can't find your scissors? I said, what's the matter, Sid? Can't find your scissors? Hulk Hogan. Terry Bollea. The NB stands for new blood, and I'm taking care of Bollea, dude. Kevin Nash. Hey, kid. Is your mom home? I mean, look at the adjective. Mom. Vince... Russo. That dirty, stinking, shock-infested creek. You keep your hands to yourself, young lady. I am the Batman! Aqualads, Aqualasses, welcome to what can only be described as the greatest spectacle in the history of sports, sports, I can't even, of sports-based entertainment. Folks, it's WCW Must Die, episode X7, the pinnacle of all that is holy. You know, because WrestleMania X7, it's like the pinnacle of everything. Oh my God, my name is Johnny C, and we are live in the Aqua Cave to bring you the latest episode in the ongoing battle between the Millionaire's Club and the New Blood. 
And my god, as you can tell, because I can barely hold my shit together, uh, it is time for WCW Thunder. Okay, I, I have to absolutely get myself under control because I gotta do the intro thing in case it's somebody's first episode. <laughs> okay, I'm using the breathing techniques that they taught me before I went into labor. Alright, oh, here we go. Guys, welcome to WCW Must Die. My name is Johnny C. You're listening to us here in the Aqua Cave. I cannot thank you enough. Um, if this is your first time joining in for WCW Must Die, holy fuck, did you pick a doozy. But this is a show that is here to have fun uh, with late 2000 WCW. It's a show that started all the way back on the North-South Podcast Connection feed, North-South Connection Podcast Network feed, (laughs) that started recapping WCW programming, starting with the reboot that happened in April of 2000, where Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo created the storyline that is the New Blood versus the Millionaire's Club. Now, what I'm tasked with doing is to bring to the audience uh, a sort of a recap or reevaluation of what happened on the show. Okay? Now, you will find very quickly that I often get sidetracked telling you what happened with trying to figure out what the fuck has happened to professional wrestling, specifically WCW. Um, but it is a show designed to have fun, so we will not be evaluating... Um, Tokyo Dome classics, to put it bluntly. And that's totally okay. What else would you expect? But by this point in time, I think you know what you all are getting into. And I thank you so much for returning for another round of excitement. Now, let's get serious for a moment, uh, even though Lance Storm is not here yet. So, on our previous episode, there were quite a bit of storyline implications that occurred that should be putting WCW back on track. And yeah, I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, but let's call a spade a spade. The WCW Championship has been removed from Ric Flair, which, you know, is really kind of a good thing, because Ric Flair has been so involved and entangled in this nonsense with Vince Russo and David Flair. It's best kept to being a sideshow or an additional attraction to these circumstances or events, and should not be uh, the main event championship-based storyline. And so, Jeff Jarrett's now the champion, and while I think we can all agree we're kind of tired of this, at least he's a heel with the main championship. And of course, every heel needs a babyface to chase. Well, even though he's not going to be the chasing babyface, we know that because we have uh, history in our purview, Goldberg, the man, the athlete, the superstar, uh, has returned to WCW as of Monday Nitro. Now, he is still entangled in a feud with David Tank Abbott, but with a heel champion on top and Goldberg solidified as the face of WCW once again, all roads should be leading to an eventual confrontation between the two. And how will WCW uh, bounce back or take advantage of this newfound hot angle that could potentially be at their fingertips? Well, it's May 31st, 2000, so the first thing we have to do is talk about Thunder, and it's live via tape from Boise, Idaho, specifically the Boise Center. And as if they're piggybacking off of my wise words, they start with a video recap of Nitro. 
This re video recaps Jarrett retaining the or regaining the gold, and it recaps Goldberg returning. It's also set to some music, which is pretty okay, but it's definitely what I would equate to a porn parody of what I would call Final Fantasy battle music. Because this song sounds like it would fit right at home in a random encounter from Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy VIII, but, you know, it's not up to that quality, so it's the porn parody version. I decide, for the first time in the history of our podcast, to take advantage of Peacock's skip intro button, because I have decided that the WCW Thunder opening credits are just too much to take. As the credits end and the pyro begins, Tony Schiavone lets us know that the New Blood and Jeff Jarrett may control the gold, but Goldberg himself controls WCW, and now that he is back, the balance of power has shifted. Okay, that gels up with kind of what I was hypothesizing, and I think that's a good start. Speaking of good starts, though, it just wouldn't be WCW Thunder without Chris Candido here to start things off. I noticed right away, as Candido makes his entrance, Tammy is nowhere to be found. Most likely incarcerated, but that is not important. And for fuck's sake, Chris Candido is indeed cosplaying as Terry Funk. He has on Terry Funk's exact ring attire. His trunk, his, his like tights, if you will, with the exact same pattern as Funk. And a red headband bandana thing for good measure. And for fuck's sake, he has a microphone, so he's going to talk. He says he is alone tonight because he finally has something to do. I would say that is still TBD, but he continues. Um... And, and, it, I, and I, will, I will say this. I will give Chris Candido this. It seems that he's given up all hope of feuding with the Macho Man. Since Tammy's not here, there's there's no Macho Man to be found. He seems to have been. He seems to have moved on, and I think that's important for a personal journey that Chris Candido is on here. But for fuck's sake, can the personal journey of sports entertainers be shifted to include a better understanding of acronyms? Because Chris says I left. WWF, and I left the ECW. And if you really expand on those acronyms, what he says is, I left World Wrestling Federation and the Extreme Championship Wrestling. And you, you should just flip it, Chris. Just flip the switch. Look, look at the article. The. Alright? For fuck's sake. Uh, he, Chris indicates he's finally found a smart boss. And this boss has given him the chance to go out here and bring the hardcore belt right back to Eric Bischoff. Tonight, just like when they take an old horse, when he's gotten old, they take it out back and boom, put one in its head. And again, he says that they take an old horse when that horse has gotten old and they execute it at point blank range with a firearm. Um, Bobby the Brain Heenan points out that Chris Candido is indeed dressed just like Terry Funk. And now, here comes a very sweaty Terry Funk, because his gray shirt is just absolutely covered in moisture, and it's gross. Chris Candido rushes down the ramp. In defense, Terry Funk throws the hardcore championship belt at Mr. Candido like it's a fucking weapon. Then, he lowers his head to deliver a back body drop to the cunning extreme athlete. And the bell rings. So, 
match number one for WCW's hardcore belt. Terry Funk defeats Chris Cantino via... You fucking wouldn't believe me if I told you how he beats him. So let's press forward. Chris Candido immediately eats three chair shots, but luckily his left hand absorbs most of the punishment. Tony, on commentary, hopes that tonight we will get an update of the clandestine meetings that Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo have been having recently that will allegedly change the face of sports entertainment forever. Now, as Tony is talking about this, Chris Candido and Terry Funk disappear behind the curtain uh, in the entrance stage, which is actually like pretty standard hardcore stuff. I point this out because as they disappear, we cut to the announcers. As we're cutting to the announcers, Mike Tanay is saying something, and we see Tony Schiavone reposition himself and start to actively looking down excuse me, we watch him look down into the monitor that he uses to call the action. Because now that he's gotten his thought out about clandestine meetings, it's time for him to start calling the action. Okay? Tony sees himself on the monitor. He then spikes the camera with a look that can be only be that can only be described as you've gotta be fucking kidding me. He makes a finger circle with three fingers pointing upward, as if to indicate Bang up job, boys. The brain cannot help but laugh at Tony's displeasure. Tony transitions to an awkward smile in the camera. The crowd boos incessantly. We are on camera, Tony Schiavone proclaims. Tony Schiavone is now visibly holding back laughter as he tries and fails to introduce his broadcast colleagues when he calls Bobby the Brain Tony Schiavone and Mike Tanay Bobby the Brain. Mike Tanay immediately disproves online theories that he may be a heartless robot by laughing on camera. Finally, we head backstage where punches and plunder rain. Terry Funk dumps a container of tools on Chris Cantito's head. Which, for fuck's sake, that has got to hurt. Now, Chris Candido is confused, and much like a Looney Tune, he wanders around and purposefully falls into a laundry cart. He does this so Terry Funk can tip it over. Now, Terry Funk has a chair. He swings it, and the chair lightly taps Chris Candido in the face, which, upon further review, was actually the man's left hand. Again. And for fuck's sake... Now Terry Funk is throwing Chris Candino into the bed of a truck that is parked but has the motor running. We seem to be embarking on a new journey here on WCW Must Die. Perhaps the second annual King of the Road match? We are not that lucky. Terry Funk himself enters the driver's seat. The referee is torn and confused. Does he dare enter the fray and continue to referee the match by jumping into the back of the truck? No time to ponder this red-headed referee because Terry Funk indeed drives away. The referee gives chase on foot, but there's no way he could possibly make up the ground. Back to the announcers now, and they're actively laughing and shitting all over the preceding events. Are we going to be able to follow this? Says Tony Schiavone. Words that ring oh so very true and carry multiple layers of meaning. I understand we are now trying to dispatch a camera crew as we speak, says Tony Schiavone, while desperately 
trying to maintain a straight face. The camera then cuts to the outside, where we are definitely seeing the truck speed away, and we seem to be on some sort of porch configuration because there's like a white fence in front of the camera. It's it's very hard to figure all this out, okay? The truck of funk pulls into a nearby facility that appears to be, according to Tony Schiavone, some sort of a ranch. Now, Tony, Tony, God, Terry Funk parks the car, and we can see that Chris Candido is in the bed of the truck, now standing. Terry Funk approaches this new battlefield, but Chris Candido yells, It's over, Terry! I've got the high ground! And he throws a fucking trash can square into Terry Funk's skull. As Terry Funk tries desperately to grab Candido and get him out of the bed of the truck. The men brawl over by what are now clearly identified as stables, and folks, there is a horse in the building! Because Mr. Ed, or Piamai, whatever you'd like it to be, is indeed here, as the two sports entertainers trade blows near a gated fence. (laughs) Or a fence. Wouldn't it be a gated fence? I can't even fucking... They're fighting in front of a horse. A horse is actively watching them engage in hardcore competition. Chris Candido tosses Terry Funk over a wrestling table here at the stable. And that indeed did rhyme. But don't worry, the announcers are going to get in their rhymes as well. Because on commentary, this exchange happens. Of course! Why wouldn't there be a WCW table in a stable? And then, as only Mike Tanay can do, he has to restate what Tony Schiavone just said and says, a table in a stable! So Mike Tanay is now a re-rhymer. That fucking piece of shit. Terry Funk is then thrown into a pile of hay. Terry Funk is then thrown headfirst into a water trough, which seems kind of dangerous. Now, Chris Candido puts a very, very, very wet Terry Funk head first into a wheelbarrow of hay and manure, which is clearly visible. Bobby the Brain Heenan says, Oh, he's from Texas. He'll like that. And Tony Schiavone says, Yes, he'll be able to grow tomatoes in his beard. (laughs) Now the gentlemen are battling near a stable door, which is clearly marked two. Chris Candido opens stable door. Number two, Bobby the Brain Heenan hypothesizes, he's going to go get old Soup Bone. And I'm confused, because I only know Soup Bone as the Undertaker's dangerous striking fists. So I'm under the impression that Chris Candido is venturing into the stable so he can ride the Undertaker off into the sunset. Now, folks, both sports entertainers have entered stable two, and there is a fucking active horse in the stable with them. With each successive blow and sound that the sports entertainers make, the horse moves slowly into the kill position. Can the horse count the one, two, three? Wonders Tony Schiavone. Terry Funk sets up Chris Candido for a pile driver in stable two. He completes the pile driver motion and is now sitting on his ass directly behind the horse. And Jesus fucking Christ, the horse pounds up, signals for the finish, and 
plasters Terry Funk with the sweet elbow music. Now, I say this jokingly, and for God's sakes, the man is so lucky that the horse, who does indeed deliver a fucking sweet chin music fucking side crescent kick, as Gorilla Monsoon would say, the horse kicks Terry Funk straight in the fucking arm, right in the elbow, and I'm surprised his arm doesn't snap in fucking two. The bastard is so lucky, like, this would be, this is a complete fucking shit show, but it would be an even larger, unmitigated disaster if this, like, how do you control a horse? Like, why do this? But I tell you what, guys, I'm really glad that they did. Chris Candido, upon noticing that the horse is now flailing, decides, fuck it, I'm not selling the pile driver. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Um, Terry Funk follows suit, but decides to yell at the horse before he does. Only on thunder, says Bobby the Brain Heenan, and you are so fucking right, Brain. Somehow, Terry Funk is now laying on the stable table unconscious. I don't know what happened. Chris Candido decides to wrap a rope around Terry Funk, because at this point, why the fuck not? I'll see myself out now, (laughs) because I did indeed say, why the fuck not? Because he's tying a knot around Terry. You you see what that was. You see it. Now, Chris Candido decides to climb the stable door, perhaps to throw himself with some additional momentum down on the Funkster in hopes of gaining the one, two, three. But Terry Funk shoots up, and he pulls on the rope that Chris Candido is holding, and Chris Candido lands ass first on the table. Terry Funk yells at the referee to make the pinfall count. But Terry Funk is standing and not actively pitting the fallen, his fallen opponent. So what the fuck is he yelling at? He then hits the referee with a trash can. Then decides to cover for the 1-2-3. But there's no referee! Terry Funk grabs a bucket of water, pours it onto the red-headed referee. The referee awakens suddenly and counts the 1-2-3. Now as the referee signals for the bell... Terry Funk's theme music starts to play back in the arena, and some cheeky bastard in post-production has added the sound of a horse neighing to the beginning of Terry Funk's theme song. (laughs) In a complete fucking amazing move of Brian Synergy. (laughs) And that's the end of the match. (laughs) And as I told you up top in the summary, if I told you how Terry Funk defeated Chris Candido... Would you have believed me without the recap at your fingertips? Now, I hope this explains why I couldn't help but with containing myself as I did my introduction, as I knew that I was destined to speak of this match first. I'm going to calm down, and I have prepared a... Now, I I didn't know what to do here, guys. Now, you all know one of the fun parts of WCW Must Die is I rank the matches uh, one to five, just like good old Dave Meltzer does, okay? But on this show, uh, the matches are in a unique... uh, They they have a unique opportunity. A five-star match and a... You know, what I'm trying to say is that a five-star match can be indicative of a couple of things. One... I just saw AJ Styles and Nakamura tear down the house of the Tokyo Dome. Or I just saw something that is beyond words. Given that information, 
I have a prepared statement I would like to read in order to make sure that I get my point across completely. All right. Now, folks, I'm at a bit of a loss for words, which is not something that happens often. We have seen so much on this program, and each week we seem to venture into uncharted territory. The great Captain James T. Kirk once described the future, or the unknown, as the undiscovered country. And I believe that is where this match has taken us. In response to these events, I give this sports entertainment confrontation infinite stars. This match needs to be broadcast 24-7 into the heavens. That way, if there is somehow intelligent life to be found in the vastness of space, they will be able to see this transmission and gain an instant understanding of the pinnacle of the human condition. And this ends my prepared statement. We cut to the back where Vince Russo is on the phone. Now, unfortunately, fans, it's never revealed who Vince Russo is indeed speaking to. However, he tells this individual that he's waiting for someone to arrive. And I believe he has just arrived. And oh my goodness, here he is at the door. I gotta go. I'll call you back later. Uh, but the one-sided phone call ends. And I doubt that Mr. Russo was even speaking to someone. Because look at this old school fucking phone. Who could figure out how to get a line out on this goddamn thing? But... As I mentioned, Ernest the Cat Miller is here to meet with Mr. Russo. And Vince lets the cat know that Eric Bischoff is indeed at a clandestine meeting this evening. And Vince Russo is all sorts of busy with the Flair family feud. So tonight, Russo and Bischoff are putting Ernest the Cat Miller in charge of Thunder. My heart grows 17 trillion fucking sizes larger. And I'm ecstatic that this almost guarantees a multitude of cat-related segments as the evening progresses. Russo takes off, and in a brilliant move, the cat double-checks by looking out the tiny window in the room to make sure that Russo is gone before putting his feet up on the desk and proclaiming that he is indeed in charge. We cut to the back, and there is a white limo arriving. A limo driver with very baggy dress pants. I mean, this guy shouldn't have even been approved by the Boise Board of Limo Drivers because, well, it is 2000 though, so maybe this is the appropriate level of bagginess for a dress pant. But I digress. Inside the limousine is Ric Flair. Now, Reed Fleer is behind Ric Flair, so I'm not sure if this is actually Ric Flair or Ric Flair, but since he's spoken no words and it's a wrestling program, I'm going to assume it is indeed the nature boy, Ric Flair. Reed Flair walks forward, and Rick sticks around to help America's favorite stepmom, Beth Flair, emerge from the back of the limo. And I'll keep it classy, but I'll just say, Mrs. Flair, hey, how's it going? Anywho, we head to a commercial. We're back from a commercial. Again, outside the Boise Arena. This fucking parking lot is getting so much play in this episode of Thunder. It is indeed the MVP. But it's earlier today, and the paparazzi is out in Boise, which consists of about four or five WCW staffers, one of which 
holding a very large, very comical 1980s-style camera uh, to capture video recording. But this camera is not entangled with a massive amount of cables and cords, so I even doubt it's capturing any live video. But a Rolls-Royce emerges. It looks like a clown car to me, so if a Rolls-Royce is supposed to be cool, eh, I don't know. But it is indeed Kimberly Page wearing a halter top that covers only her breasts that reads M.E. Tony Schiavone ensures us, it's not for main event, it stands for me. She walks a red carpet as the elements take control and blows her hair in a way that she can't possibly be pleased with, and she enters the arena. A nice moment here as we have a sweeping crowd shot and we capture some young lovers with their arms draped around one another. The female points her head backwards, realizes they're on camera, sticks out her tongue, and gives the old rock and roll symbol. And the touching moment is no more. We then recap the Fleer family tragedy from Nitro. After the video that honestly recaps too much and is too long, we cut back to the arena and we get the thunder graphics and lightning and what have you. And it's just obvious that something's taped out of order or they're showing something out of order and we just fade into the same arena at just a different point in the taping. And it's really embarrassing and I hope they're embarrassed. Okay, It's like they're not even trying. It's like at any moment, they're going to cut to like Tony Schiavone making himself a sandwich and he's going to get caught on camera and he's going to just kind of give the finger thing like, get out of here. You can't see this but i digress rick flair's music hits and he makes his way down to the ring with beth and reed in tow now you would think that the announcers wouldn't talk over rick flair making this entrance that he does because you know he's rick flair but tony is still balls deep in the events of nitro and how amazing they were and he starts listing all the things that happened and he throws in for good measure tony osman in attendance as well and i'm like jesus christ tony but he's primarily trying to hype that this monday in atlanta which is clearly where all their focus is from having watched this episode that it's going to be tank and goldberg on Nitro, they're not even holding it for the pay-per-view. You know, it's sort of the the last couple to come out of the reboot that hasn't had a match together. So, you know, it's going to happen on Nitro. Now, during this uh, segment where they reiterate these things, two things happens. One, hilarious, unexpected. The other, completely expected. Bobby the Brain Heenan calls Tank Abbott the tankster, which is going to become a thing around here. And, of course, the thing you all expected Mike Tanay chimes in at the end to restate that that's this Monday. Take it, Goldberg. That was kind of a little high pitched for the for Tank or for God for Tank for Mike Tanay, but I'm going to leave it in because it shows how ridiculous he truly is. Now, before the interview starts happening, Ric Flair is in the ring and he awkwardly kisses Beth. I don't know if it's Flair or Fleer at this point. I've given up. And speaking of giving up, it's at this moment I realize that in the narrative. Vince Russo left the arena with Beth and with Reed in tow. So what the fuck? But whatever, I don't care. Now, Boise is happy to see Ric Flair, unlike the announcers who decided to talk over his entrance. They're chanting his name, and Rick says, Vince Russo, do you hear me? In Boise, Idaho. They respect and love the nature boy, reiterates Mike Tanay. He says he can't cry because he's so pumped up by Boise. He's like, it took a great wrestler, a baseball bat, a snake named Russo, and my own son to take them gold from me. But he ain't crying, because it happens. And I'm like, on what fucking sports planet does this happen if Ric Flair actually believes we're in a sport? You know, if the ump, like, blows a call, like, 
it, that's something that happens. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. It happens. Same sort of scenario with, like, missing a last-second shot at the buzzer. I mean, it happens. You missed your shot. What are you going to do about it? You know, you're the last hope for your nation in a shootout, and Julie the Cat Gaffney blocks your shot. That happens. You go shake their hands anyway. But last night... Last night, that's right, Ric Flair, again, is like the one consistent motherfucker who's been in the business the longest, but he cannot remember that last night was actually two nights ago. You embarrassed me in front of him. Him being Reed. He says, you embarrassed me in front of her, brother, and that's hard to do. (laughs) You see, did you hear that? I said brother, and then I was supposed to say, that's hard to do, as Ric Flair. But I said brother, and I said, that's hard to do. Because you say brother, I mean, Hulk Hogan is here, all right? But he says it's hard to embarrass Beth Flair. So this is confirmed. We've got a Beth Flair. So she's a character now. So we're allowed to say whatever we want around her. All right? Or about her. But she's been around the world. What the nature, boy? Woo! And if you want to talk about embarrassing Beth Flair, I'm just going to point out, it's very cold in the Boise, Idaho arena. And that's okay because it's a very natural state of existence. As Flair woos about Beth being embarrassed by her, she smiles for the camera, but I'm assuming dies a little inside. Now, Rick goes into a soliloquy about fighting David at the Great American Bash. It's really not that interesting, but he is certainly enjoying his time here in Idaho. And if you don't believe me, then folks, it's time for this week's edition of Fun with Closed Captions, 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 Captions. So after taunting David Flair, Ric Flair is facing the camera, dead in the center of the ring with his eyes on it. He simply pivots to his right, using his pivot foot like he's a basketball player, and goes, woo, indistinct. And then he struts and yells just like that. And this ends Fun with closed captions, captions, captions. But if you want to include the icing on the cake for this point of the segment, Ric Flair offers one last piece of information for David Flair, and I'm appalled and amused and amazed all at the same time. He says, I'm going to beat your 21-year-old ass like I should have 10 years ago. Woo! Now, keep in mind, like, let's freeze time right now, Okay. Because there's a comment that follows this up that blows my mind as well. But pause. So Rick is saying that he should have beat David when he was 11 to avoid all this conflict in their life. Indicating that one, those two events correlate to one another. And two, the ends justify the means. But I fucking love it. And it cracks me up. Because you can kind of tell right after he says it. (laughs) He's like, what? In his skull. Like, what did I just say on TV? Oh my god, it cracks me up. So, if you're ready now, we can unpause what happened after Ric Flair made this ridiculous comment. It's a follow-up from Tony Schiavone. He says, the wrath of a father. (laughs) I'm like, what? Tony, you know something about this? Jesus Christ. I should call some 1-800 number or something. Somebody tweet me the number. But he, he then continues to yell Boise about 16 times. And you know exactly how it sounds when I say that. But he challenges Vince Russo to a match tonight live on Thunder. And I'm just like, oh, please, 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 please let this happen. 
Uh, as if to answer my prayers, some broke-ass peacock music hits, and Russo and David Flair emerge with Russo and Bischoff Security flanking them. And hey, look, Samurai Cop is here, getting his minutes as usual. Good for you, Samurai Cop. He's in a prominent position right behind Russo. And right next to him, I swear to God, is who I believe is none other than character actor Rip Torn. Now, you probably know Rip Torn best as the guy that played Patches from Dodgeball, because that's kind of like a, a more modern cult comedy hit, whatever, and it gets a lot of play, and the Ocho has sort of taken it along further than the movie ever should have. But I remember him from such films as RoboCop 3, Freddy Got Fingered, and the legendary... Absolutely amazing 1980s classic mainstay, The Beastmaster. And it doesn't surprise me that Rip Torn is here on TBS because The Beastmaster is sometimes called the movie that saved TBS. And this is not bullshit because back in the day, man, like TBS was known for always airing The Beastmaster like fucking at least three or four times a day. The, there was, the gag was TBS stood for The Beastmaster Station. These are hashtag facts. Oh, God. If I actually said hashtag facts, being serious, I want you to punch me in the face, by the way. But upon further evaluation of this wrestling show, it's, it's not rip-torn. So, all that... I mean, The Beastmaster information is extremely relevant, but it's not relevant to what we're talking about. Now, Russo is rocking the classic pro wrestling trope of, like, sunglasses inside with a leather jacket when you know you're going to be sweating your balls off. But there is more to this man's tough exterior because he is indeed sporting a graphic tee featuring John Lennon. And you guys have all seen this picture. It's like the one that's hanging up in a dorm room that every douchebag has, and you only put up with it so you can sit there and smoke his weed without having to pay. It's okay. I understand. But it's like Lennon, and he's got, like, a New York City T-shirt on, and he's looking really cool, and he's got his arms crossed. So, by God, it is a dorm room poster. Back to the arena, Mike Tanay says that Vince Russo looks confident because he's flanked by Homeland Security. Uh... So, you heard me right, folks. Mike Tanay just said Homeland Security in May of 2000. <laughs> it's a conspiracy, damn it. But here's the thing. Here's some really something for your noodle. The Office of Homeland Security was not created until 11-25-02, and it was in response to the events of 9-11. And I can hear the JFK music behind me. So I only see three possible scenarios here. One, Mike Tanay is a time traveler from the future, and every time he told us the name of a cool wrestling move, he was just putting together a random assortment of even cooler future words. Number two. Mike Tanay is some sort of master manipulator, a la Darth Sidious, and he's so busy constantly moving around chess pieces, he knows that someday his manipulation of these opposing forces against another, one another will eventually result in the forming of an Office of Homeland Security, and therefore it's always in the back of his mind. He's got to remember when that part of the plan comes into play. You can't get lost in your little clone war or your chess match against someone else. It's just not going to work. Scenario number three happenstance and he just chose the words without provocation or any other meaning behind them i'm gonna go with number three because if mike tenay was from the future he'd probably have a better wardrobe and if mike tenay was some sort of master manipulator out of a la darth sidious i'd rather jump than to live in a world where mike tenay is the cool guy well darth sidious isn't cool because he does a bunch of bad shit but like if he if he could pull that off 
I wouldn't want to live in that world because you should have to be a lot cooler than Mike Tanay to pull that off. Yeah, that's what we'll go with. Jesus Christ, this wrestling show is breaking me. Enough about me, though. Let's get back to the action at hand. So Russo and David pause in the ramp as R&B security flanks them. Rick begs them to keep walking. But Samurai Cop stands proud, and R&B security forms a human shield around Russo and young David Flair. And hey, it looks like recently under-fired speedster Ezra Miller is also a member of R&B security. So good for them. They go into business for themselves, though, and try to steal some of the spotlight by pushing their hands in a downward motion, as if to indicate to the crowd, quiet down, everyone, the adults are about to speak. Russo claims to be wearing shades, so his boys in the Bronx won't know that he's in Idaho. But you know what, Vince? I gotta be honest. I can't imagine E, Turtle, Johnny Drama, and Donkey Dong Doug have any time to watch Thunder, because they're probably on the, on the set of Aquaman with their other friend, the real favorite Vince. You're welcome, by the way. I gave you Champ and a Witchback. So there is the throwaway line indicating how Ric Flair gained custody of Beth and Reed Flair. Rick responds to this by yelling, kiss my ass, kiss my ass, woo! Russo takes a beat and then sprays some chloroseptic into his mouth. He says, look at me, Rick. I've got a cold and I'm still here. You have a little brain aneurysm and miss an entire week of work. Rick's big comeback to this insult. You're a mark for me. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Woo. But he at least follows up with a more dramatic and man-worthy, you're a chicken shit with no balls from New York. Now that's actually kind of an intense insult to be broadcast live on TBS Thunder. And I'm surprised it made it through the censors. Flair then points to someone who's off camera, technically, because we, you know, we can't actually see who he's pointing at, but we're able to infer it based on what he says. He says, you, you're even worse because you're hanging out with him. And of course, Mike Tanay reiterates, he's pointing at his son. God damn you, Mike. Russo's like, enough, enough. I'm here to talk to Beth. Now, Rick is blown away by the statement. He can't possibly believe that Vince Russo would have anything to say to Beth Flair. But Rick is a nice guy, so he does give his wife permission to listen to what Mr. Russo has to say. Russo leans into it, and he's all like, uh, You know, Beth, John Lennon once wrote a great song called Imagine. So imagine David wins at the Great American Bash. And Ric Flair has to retire. To which fucking Mike Tenay reiterates because Vince Russo pauses to take a breath if he loses to a son in 11 days. That means, Beth, no more gravy train. No more checks coming in. No more limos. And that's the reason you're married to this slug in the first place. How are you going to live on just his social security? Now that is enough for the 16-time champion, and he charges at the combined forces of Rip Torn, Samurai Cop, and alleged Ezra Miller. But they are too much, and they fight him off, and the human shield remains intact. Uh, <laughs> at this point, Vince Russo claims that Space Mountain has been broken for years. Flair 
indicates that it's clear to him that Russo didn't come to answer his challenge, because if you want to talk about dicks, it looks like Little Italy is nothing compared to Space Mountain. Woo! Now, Little Italy is not a bad nickname for, you know, Vince Russo's dick. And hey, alleged Ezra Miller doesn't like this comment. He reacts to it, so he's definitely doing something right, that being the former champion. Flair then yells, You want to wrestle? You want to wrestle? You want to wrestle? He sounds like he's goddamn Sal Bandini, but not nearly as cool. Russo, however, accepts, much to the surprise of the nature boy, and books a father versus son match. And I'm just fucking tickled pink for this. Uh, Flair laughs like it's a joke at first, but then reconsiders, looks down at Champ, and says, Reed, Reed, what do you say, brother? What do you say? You fired up? You fired up? He then puts the microphone in front of young Reed Flair's mouth, and with all the authority of the Jonathan Taylor Thomas Thomas version of Simba, Reed yells, Of course I am! Flair rushes, rushes, rushes at Russo to try to get a cheap shot, but luckily R&B security holds him back, and Russo paintbrushes him, and David gets in a few good shots with a bat as they head to the back. The Russo bunch is indeed victorious, and we indeed have father versus son versus father versus son. And I cannot fucking wait to see Vince Russo and Reed Flair in the ring together. I really hope they get some time against one another. In the back with the cat, somehow he's dialed out on this old ass crazy phone. And he's saying to whomever is on the other end, Get me anybody, somebody, please! He slams down the phone and Mike Awesome is here. Kimberly arrives and she's pissed that catering didn't have the special food she ordered. Uh, she wants to talk to the boss. Cat's like, well, I'm the boss. But Kimberly says she only deals with Eric Bischoff. She needs camera time, interview time, security forces, etc., etc. Cat's like, I'll take care of all of that. I will definitely get somebody to watch them. Pointing at her enormous, surgically enhanced bosoms. Uh, Kimberly, while appreciating the attention, is like, Ernest, my face is up here. Which is pretty funny that someone actually called him Ernest. Uh... But he suggests Mike Awesome handle these duties for Kimberly. She takes a beat and asks Mr. Awesome, how are you in a foot massage? Mike Awesome, without missing any beat or without any sense of it being ridiculous, says, I'm pretty good. And the cat's like, so am I. I'm good too. But Kimberly uh, elects to go with Mr. Awesome and they leave the cat's office so he can further ponder more fictional phone calls. Wow. Things are getting intense here on Thunder. And this son-father-father-son match, I just... Wow. I can't fucking wait. But before we can get to the father and son versus father and son tag team match, a first of its kind, we return to find the kidster in Tori hurriedly getting dressed in the cat's office. Actually, they're just sitting there, and Kidman's saying vague things like, It's over tonight. It's over. I'm done with it. I'm done with him. The cat returns to a small yet empowering domain and is furious to find that not only is the kidster here, but his feet are up on the cat's desk. Would you come into Bischoff's office like this? Hey, I'm the kid. Well, I'm the cat. Get your ass out of his chair. It's a really nice, fun exchange that's finally letting the cat's personality really shine through. And Kidman, you know, does his usual wooden Kidman acting. But whatever, he's getting more TV time than ever, I suppose. But would you rather be on TV a lot and look eh? Or be on TV every once in a while and look 
So I guess it's dealer's choice. Kidman, though, finds some inner peace and yields the chair to the cat. He starts to tell him that tonight there's business to take care of. He then notices Tori Wilson's skirt, which, while long, is definitely made up of those little streamer things that they would hang over like the door to the gym when you'd have one of those really sweet formal dances in your local high school. Tori is legitimately like, uh, dude, I always wear stuff like this. I mean, she doesn't say it that casually or with that type of inflection, but she's like, I always wear outfits like this. And it's like, yeah. (laughs) I mean, she does. You look good to me, says the cat in a way that's meant to be heard by no one and everyone simultaneously. Kidman wants to get to the point, though. He wants a new ref for the Great American Bash. He doesn't trust Bischoff making Horace the ref. And then he starts to generally talk shit about Bischoff, to which the cat warns him, that's my best friend. Don't make me whoop your ass. (laughs) But the kid is basically here to make a request of the cat. Let's get to the point. He says, tonight I want a match with me, Sting, and that fathead Horace. Don't call him names, that's rude. Injects, interjects Tori Wilson, which is the sound, but whatever. They're really playing into this does Tori like Horace sort of thing. The cat says, don't worry, I'll take care of it tonight. You'll get what you want. We then go back into the arena for a match. No, it's Kimber Me and Mikey bringing a table to the ring. While Bischoff's away, the cat will play. Mike today now reiterating the segments that have already passed, clearly in a league all to himself. Bobby the Brain Heenan, though, pleases or, or praises the cat's problem-solving abilities. You know, he's like, well, if you think about it, everyone that's wanted something from him tonight has gotten what they needed. So, you know, customer service is important to the brain, and if it's important to the brain, I'm glad that he's getting it. You know, after all these last years weren't very kind in WCW, at least he gets to go, he gets to go out on a high note. Tony promotes an interview coming up later tonight, that he conducted with Bischoff yesterday that will provide an update on the clandestine meeting that he had that will change the face of sports entertainment and turn sports entertainment on its ear forever. Now, I might be crazy, folks, but during the stable match of earlier in the evening, did Tony Schiavone not promote that Eric Bischoff would not be here tonight because he's at a clandestine meeting and then he got caught on camera making a bologna sandwich? I mean, do you remember that whole shtick and segment that we went through in the first part of this show? Does nothing matter? <sighs> Anywho, let's, let's talk about this sign that's in the audience. This will cheer us up. So there is a sign in the audience that says, when they gave out brains... Kimberly was fixing her hair. Now, this is an old trope. You've probably heard a thousand different variations of this in quotation marks joke. And it's hilarious that it's trying to point out a flaw in the intelligence level of Kimberly Page. But I would feel foolish if I did not represent this fan to the utmost when making this statement. I think while reading this sign, it should be pointed out. That after it says brains, so when they it says when they gave out brains, and then you can see Kimberly poorly written and in a manner that wouldn't be visible on camera, crossed out. And it's not like they went to great lengths to cover it up. It's crossed out with a bunch of squiggly lines. 
And then below it, it says Kimberly was fixing her hair. So, Kimberly is not intelligent enough to be on your TV. You're not intelligent enough to make a competent sign. We should all just end it now here in Boise. Hey, DDP, I'm Monday Nitro. You hit me with the chair. Two times, two times, says Mike Awesome. I don't know why my Mike Awesome sounds like a skinnier version of Eric Cartman. I will try to work on it. He lists all his grievances that he has with DDP, including using G.I. Bro as a weapon against him on Nitro and getting his basketball buddy, Carl Malone, to hit him with the diamond cutter. But there'll be no friends at the Great American Bash, especially your buddy Canyon, who I put into hospital. Kimberly seems excited to hear this news as she bounces frivolously. (laughs) She then grabs the microphone from Mike and says, You may now welcome me with your applause. There's no applause, really. And then she, like, asks for more, and eventually, whatever. There's some cuts to some fun-looking dudes in the audience who are clearly excited to see uh, the silicone seamstress, which makes no fucking sense because she's not a seamstress. (laughs) But you know what? I wanted some alliteration in there. And when you ad-lib, anything can happen in the WWF. Speaking of ad-libbing, Kimberly launches into a soliloquy that I wish we could say was an ad lib, but clearly it was delivered to her and she was forced to memorize it. And it goes a little something like this. And I'm paraphrasing. She says she gets a lot of fan mail. Questions like, who does your hair? What perfume do you wear? Which restaurants do you frequent? But without a doubt, the number one question in the world that she gets asked in her fan mail Are people in Boise really that ugly? There's not even a smattering of polite applause or giggles. Tony Schiavone says, where's the hook? (laughs) I love when Tony says things that he really means. She says, you people are so gauche. She wonders if they shop at TJ Maxx and wear Wranglers. At this point, I see nothing wrong with Kimberly's taunts. There is no DDP tonight because he's in jail for breaking the restraining order regulations. She knows that all the boys in the arena, though, are jealous of DDP because they used to be married. And all the boys here want to be near me, touch me, smell my neck. Smell my neck? Jesus fucking Christ. She said that out loud. And then the end of the, and then the rest. And no, they're not real, but they are fabulous. So she's stealing from Seinfeld that I stole from, talking about her a couple weeks ago. <laughs> the son becomes the father, and the father the son, truly. In response to her titillating words, a fan enters the ring. She yells, ew, a fan, get him. Mike Awesome protects her from this brazen Boise boy by placing him in position for the Awesome Bomb. As this man is bent over, Kimberly yells, ew, I see his crack. (laughs) Which, (laughs) which, uh, which isn't funny, but I mean, it's an, she, I mean, she's ad-libbing this, so I don't know. Good on her, I guess. A, A nice I don't know. Now, this extra, I should point out, indeed earlier was a member of R&B security. He's not ripped torn 
Samurai Cop or Legend Ezra Miller. But he's definitely, I guess, Brazen Boise Boo Boy. That, that will be his nickname if he ever shows up again. But folks, Brazen Boise Boo Boy is clearly a power plant guy that I hope never got called up. Because as Awesome throws him you know, into the powerbomb position where dude's dick is in Awesome's face and guys, you know, hanging in the air. This extra power plant WCW Pro reject has to sell being out of it. You know, you just got hit in the face by a pro wrestler and you're just a fan. So clearly you're going to be This fucker is up in the air. He looks like a dude in a character in Mortal Kombat that's waiting for the other guy to perform the fatality. I'm serious. You know, the announcer's like, finish him! And Scorpion walks over to Sub-Zero and Sub-Zero's just like, Like, like it's that comical and ridiculous. And I want it as a gif, and I want it to play on my little frame next to my bed 24-7. Alas, though, this guy gets uh, tossed through a table with an awesome bomb, but he does have the intelligence, I will say, as a, as a rookie sensation, to do that thing where you cover the back of your head with your hands to protect your skull from pro wrestling-related impact. So good on you. Kim calls the audience heathens as the brazen Boise breast dude gets carried away, and they all leave. In the back... Mufasa and Simba are conversing about their father-son confrontation for this evening. And no, I'm not talking about Shano Simba. I'm talking about Reed Flair because he sounds like little Simba. Uh, It's a good thing that they brought Reed Flair's gear as well. Seems like they may have been prepared for this confrontation. Folks, I already did fun with closed caption, but this conversation should win a fucking award because it's literally... Flair saying something like, hey, did you, indistinct. And Reed saying, indistinct, indistinct. And then Rick saying, well, you know you got it, indistinct, 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 indistinct. You ready? Indistinct, indistinct. It's bad, but it's also fucking hilarious. Now, I paid extra special attention, and I put my ears right up to the speakers. And I caught this uh, repartee, if you will. It's just like nationals. And then Reed says, I'll try my hardest, Dad. Rick slaps him on the arm and bails as we head to commercial. Now, serious question, though, okay? I know, you know, we know, they know. Now, we know that you know that they know that we know. That's from the burbs. But we all know that over the years, WCW uh, has been sued numerous times uh, for, like, uh, discrimination lawsuits and what have you. And while that is too bad that WCW conducted business practices in such a way, if they did, allegedly, I don't know. I haven't read the documents. But I know that the pay structure of WCW independent contractors was made sort of, was put into the public sphere uh, under certain circumstances, okay? And this is an absolute serious question. This kid got paid, right? Like, that's the whole point of my little shtick. Like, Reed got paid, right? Because when I was a minor, I think Reed's like 14. When I was 15, I've had a job since I was 15. Now, you know, whatever. They were like big jobs, all right? Like I was working at a fucking video store. But, and the money didn't go to my parents. The money went to me, even though I was a minor. Of course, as it should. I'm just saying. Like, so, Reed Flair is making like his fourth appearance, okay? He's had a speaking part on every appearance. So, SAG probably has something to say about this, all right? And, And, 
And it's like, he's finally wrestling tonight. So, I mean, what? Like, did he get, I mean, I'm dead serious. Did Reed Flair get paid to do this? I hope the fuck that he did. And if he did, what are we talking about here? You know, is this a W2 scenario? Hey, Reed, this is Uncle Kevin Nash. Hey, is your mom home? No, that's okay. Hey, speaking of which, buddy, I, I was over at the house last night. No, your dad wasn't there. It's no big deal. No, look, just listen, buddy. I slipped a 1099 under your pillow. You can thank me later. <laughs> Uncle Kevin Nash. <laughs> I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that there is less than an hour left in this program, and we've had precisely one match, and that one match took place precisely in a fucking stable. This episode of Thunder is some sort of fever dream. If I'm not mistaken, this is famously like a period in time where Bischoff was like, fuck it, I'm out, and basically just dealt with Hogan and said he just didn't give a shit about creative and he'd show up to do the on-screen stuff if they wanted him to. So I'm pretty sure that this is one billion percent a Vince Russo joint, if you will, and I am absolutely fucking here for it, despite my earlier claims that it was driving me insane. I guess what drives me insane is that it kind of feels like Nitro in a sense that there's so much talky-talky segments that I have to take such detailed notes. And that's fucking hard for me. Like, 10 seconds pause. Because a lot of this stuff I want to get verbatim. And I have a hard time paying attention. Did you guys see that shit just run by? I have trouble paying attention to multiple things at one time. This commercial ends and we're in the back again. It's the cat with the franchise. The cat's going to reward franchise for his hard work. It's franchise versus Jarrett for the WCW belt. You can rip him apart if you want. Just get that damn belt. I won't lie to you. I'm a three-time champion. The cat has nothing but words of inspiration for the franchise. And I'm starting to feel a little itchy here. And I'm not allergic to cats. So that much must be that the kidster is on his way to the ring. You know, because when he was in the flock, he had the seven-year itch. When you hear Kidman's theme song, you don't instantly start to scratch yourself, even if you're not itchy. Jesus, what the fuck is wrong with you? I do. Anywho, let's move on to the next segment, which indeed involves the kidster. He's not alone, however, as he's seconded by Horace Hogan and the babe, Tori Wilson. Tony Schiavone reminds us that Kidman and Sting did battle on Nitro. When Vampiro interfered... Kidman was able to burn the red and gold of Hulk Hogan. Now, folks, I've mentioned before that I'm colorblind, and I empathize with Tony Schiavone here, but for fuck's sake, everybody knows it's the red and yellow. Jesus Christ. But both dudes, that being Horace and the Kidster, try to hold open the ropes for Tori Wilson, and she's basically like, fuck it, I'm not getting involved, I'll just go straight to the floor. A hot blonde in the mix always leads to problems says Mike Tanay, and for once, I'm going to agree with Mike Tanay, as I've been known in the past to have a penchant for feeding this thing blondes, as Arnold Schwarzenegger from Total Recall would say. Sting is here! He comes out to the entrance ramp, and he does the NWO point to the audience. This causes, what an entrance, from Tony Schiavone. I guess... Sting has no time for nonsense. He sprints, and just like he does in Starcade 92 featuring Battle Bowl, he leaps and hits a double clothesline. 
God almighty, a bell rings. So finally, it's match number two. Sting, the actor, defeats the Beatles in the handicap match via the McRib. Right away, Mike Tanay confuses me by calling this a three-way dance. Tony Schiavone lets us know that Sting is prepared for a match like this. Sting has seen it all, except a human torch match, which we will witness at the Great American Bash. Since your opponent on fire to win on June 11th, reiterates Mike Tanay. Bobby the Brain again mentions that this match is booked as a three-way dance. So, fine, I will reinterpret my victory scenario. Sting, the actor, defeats Horace Hogan and Billy Kidman via the McRib. But I'd feel remiss if I didn't say that this is not made clear by the ring announcer. The heels are in control, and Bobby the Brain hits one of his old standby comments that he throws in when he really has nothing to say. Horace is in the best shape of his life. It's the best I've ever seen him in. A leg drop by BTK gets only one on the Stingster, proving that unless Hogan's in the ring... Everyone indeed refuses to sell the leg drop. Hogan protects BTK by attacking Steve during an attempted scorpion deathlock scenario. Sting is down now, and the crowd pops because it's WCW Thunder live on tape. Can we please get the crowd sweetening under control? Billy the Kid breaks up a Horace pin attempt now, and Sting uses the confusion to take control. But alas, it lasts not long as the kidster rams Sting's skull into the second turnbuckle. Horace now sets up a table vertically inside the ring against the ring ropes that are against the entrance ramp. I mention this specifically because it comes into play rather shortly. Kidman holds Sting, calling upon Horace to deliver the crushing blow. Horace comically winds up his arm like it's a tornado... All we're missing is the sound effect. He goes for a clothesline. Sting, to the surprise of everyone, ducks. And we've entered Stinger Splash City, as the hot babyface is clearly in control. Now, all jokes aside, Sting hits a spot that I've legitimately never seen before. I mentioned how the table was set up earlier in great detail, and I did it so this scenario would be clear in your head. Sting gets Kidman up for a military press, and he throws him into the table. Now, Sting actually does a really good job here and makes sure that Kidman goes through the table right at the spot before it hits the top rope so there's no give behind it. And Kidman breaks through the top of the table and crashes onto the ramp. And I'm... Look... I make fun of a lot of stuff on this show. I do, and I fucking love it, and I and I ain't going to stop. Never going to stop. Never going to stop. But that was kind of cool. It didn't look as awesome as it could have. It wasn't, like, explosive, so I don't want to oversell it. But I, I want to give them credit for that. It was pretty cool. And an innovative... I mean, God, I've been watching wrestling since 1989, folks. I don't think I've ever seen that happen, ever. So good on them. Often... Imitated, but never duplicated, allegedly. Now, Sting tosses Horace outside as well. He then starts walking to the top of the entrance ramp, right where he came out for his entrance. He signals for the DDT. 
Meaning he spins, he puts one finger in the air and spins it. <laughs> spins it like a helicopter, stings in the aisle. He throws his finger up and he spins it like a motherfucking helicopter. That was an ad lib that might get cut. No, I'm leaving it in. He starts to sprint towards Billy Kidman and Horace that are just coming to. Horace fears for his life and grasps Billy Kidman around the waist. And it looks like he's got him in a German suplex position, if to accurately describe it. But he's clearly using him as a human shield. Sting picks up speed and he does a cross body block. Now, he makes impact and instantly bounces like fall straight to the ground like gravity takes over because there's not a lot of give here because unfortunately Horace falls backwards into the ropes and it gives him some natural resistance and so Sting while he does make contact with BTK just crumbles to the ground instantly and and it looks like it fucking hurt like he most likely has some broken ribs but like the true greatest athlete in the history of our sport he reveals that he's okay, stands up, and pounds on his chest like he's motherfucking King Kong. He drags BTK into the ring, hits him with the Scorpion Deathlock, and that's the ball game. So these guys were definitely trying, and it was pretty short, not really offensive at all. I give them props for trying to be innovative, and for some strange, insane reason, Kidman and Horace continue to be involved in wrestling matches that are decent. And so I give this match two and a half actual legitimate wrestling stars and folks that's something that's hard to come by on wcw must die the heels argue post-match getting to a bit of a shoving altercation but mike awesome comes to make peace thus making him the wcw cinematic universe version of peacemaker which is a joke that are may or may not roll with in the future cut to a sepia toned video of goldberg you see folks the sepia tones are shorthand in cinematic language, for a flashback. I would have preferred no color filter and just starting the video with some wavy lines before we cut to the action that it recaps. The music has to be Linkin Park's demo tape because it's got some hard rock guitars and some DJ scratches. And did anyone else in this world find themselves obsessed with Linkin Park's first two albums? I know I did and somewhat regret it to this day. It lasts about 10 seconds and centers around Goldberg defeating Raven for the U.S. strap. We head to a commercial. We are back with Mean Gene interviewing Tankberg and Rick Steiner backstage. On Monday, you've got Goldberg, but tonight it's the Deadly Alliance. Meaning, well, he doesn't actually call him the Deadly Alliance. That's my gag. But tonight, it's Rick and Tank versus Big Kev and Big Papa Pump in a no-holds-barred tag team match. Tankberg says typical things about Goldberg and also mentioned, somehow finds a way to call WCW the WCW. He finishes with, I'm a bitch's brains in. Rick on the mic now and he barks like a dog and lays out two scenarios for their opponents tonight. Number one, if you desire confrontation, then come find me and engage with me. And scenario number two, If you're not fond of me, find a place on my flesh to chew. In the back with David and his daddy, Vinny Rue. Vince Russo tells David not to worry about Reed. He will take care of him in their upcoming match, which really just makes me so excited. Jeff Jarrett arrives angry that he's booked in a title defense this evening. 
Vince Russo sees no problem with this, reminds Jeff Jarrett that he's finger quotes the chosen one and that it's taken care of. Jeff Jarrett leaves the locker room, but offers sound words of advice that I think all of humanity can unite around and behind. A 12-year-old? Russo, you done lost your damn mind. An SUV pulls up in the parking lot about an hour into the proceedings of this show, which means it can be only one team. It is indeed the Deadly Alliance. Big Sexy behind the wheel with the freaks sitting in front on Scott Steiner's lap without seatbelts. Before we head to black, Uncle Kev reminds us, hey, freaks, click it or tick it. Because I'm not paying that fine. If anything, we're divvied it up four ways. No, three ways. Because, Scotty, you're the one that brought the freaks in here. I can't afford insurance rates to go up. You know how expensive it is these days? And Microsoft's down three points. Ugh, looks like another night at the Lakinta. After we return from Uncle Kev's financial advice, we find Ralphus and Norman Smiley walking around what they call a beautiful neighborhood. But according to them, the whole day has been a bust. No one is interested in the Norman Ralphus lawn care service or the Norman Ralphus walking the dog service. (laughs) And even though Ralphus has soft hands and a beautiful face, no one wants him to babysit their children. When suddenly, Norman Smiley looks off camera and says, Ralphus, Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? I don't know the words, but he still sees something out of you. The camera whip pans across the street to a sign that simply states, Wrestling Today. As we read the sign, two Utes ride up on bikes and race towards the backyard. One of them is clearly the bastard child of Slim Shady, or perhaps the bastard son of TNA's Slim J. Until the DNA results come back, we won't actually know. Norman eyes up the youngsters and says, Rufus, follow me. I think our luck is about to change. Wow. (laughs) Let the hunt begin. Uh, I'm appalled by this, but absolutely cannot wait to see where it takes us. Back in the office with the cat, and as the kids from Ferris Bueller's Day Off might say, he seems to be on another phony phone call, because it's very one-sided, and it doesn't appear that the other person on the end of the phone would actually have time to say something in between the cat's words. Nonetheless, he lets the voice know, the match is taken care of, it's up next, and I got to be the greatest. Well, there is certainly no arguing with that. Jeff Jarrett heads to the ring, and Tony Schiavone puts on his serious voice and is worried about what Norman Smiley and Ralphus might be up to. It's as if the joke and the terrible things I was trying to imply is actually what Tony's going for here. Mike Tanay lets us know that WCW does not condone backyard wrestling. He takes a page from Star-Spangled Avenger Captain America and offers this piece of advice that all youngsters should take the heart. Get your education, and when you're of age, come to the power plant in Atlanta, Georgia, and become a pro wrestler. And so fans, 
I took this call straight to my heart and I set out on a journey. I contacted my old high school principal and obtained proof of graduation. I contacted my old university alma mater and acquired the transcripts proving that I had acquired a bachelor's degree. I signed over legal custody of my two children to that guy down the street that's always handing out the little flyers with Jeebus on them. I went to the gas station, handed the pump technician three crisp $100 bills, and said, fill her up. I pulled out my phone. I typed 1030 Carroll Drive, Atlanta, Georgia, into the GPS, and I drove six hours and 58 minutes towards my destiny. I pulled into the parking lot, fatigued, but more determined than ever. I walked inside, only to find Simmons Mattress Outlet, open to the public seven days a week. Kidsters, the WCW power plant is no more. So let me give you some real advice. Get your education. And when you're of age, start an OnlyFans page. The money will then take care of itself. Meanwhile, Jeff Jarrett continues to walk to the ring. Tony calls Jeff Jarrett the job at the top of the ranks of sports entertainment. Out comes the franchise. We have a flashback video two weeks ago on WCW Must Die, episode 13, The Brunch Association, available exclusively on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Give it a listen. It's a fun one. But we recall substitute teacher Shane Douglas drops the ball by losing possession of the WCW Tag Team Championship belts. And then last week, episode 15, WCW Must Die, Love in Thunder. Shane loses the actual hardcore championship to a gorilla disguised as Terry Funk. Back to the present. Shane Douglas grabs the microphone, but thank the maker. Jeff Jarrett attacks, and then a bell rings. So, match three for the WCW World Heavyweight Belt Strap. Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, defeats the franchise via cat nanigans. The franchise begins with an offensive uh, flurry, clotheslining Jeff Jarrett over the top rope. No time transpires, and the cat has already entered the scene from the back. This distracts the extreme educator, and Jeff Jarrett knocks him out of the ring onto the entrance ramp. Jeff Jarrett follows and takes the cat's red scarf and immediately starts to choke the franchise. And kids, just another piece of advice, something like what I just described is easily worth $19.99 on a pay-per-view basis on OnlyFans. So... Get your parents' credit cards ready and start that page if you're of age. Start that page, but only if you're of age. And we've got our first official WCW Must Die chant. Back in the ring, though, the choking continues. The cat is furious at this, not because of Jeff Jarrett's flagrant breaking of the rules, but because he wants his red scarf back. So he instructs referee in charge Slick Johnson to rescue his scarf. The Slickster does indeed rescue the scarf from Jeff Jarrett, but throws it 
outside the ring as opposed to returning it to its rightful owner. A couple of quick pins by Shane Douglas acquire only a two-count. The cat, now furious that his scarf is wrinkled, shoves Slick Johnson, but Slick pushes him off the apron onto the arena floor. Meanwhile, behind the referee, Shane Douglas is in control and hits the Schittsburg Plunge! One! Two! Oh, but it seems that a chair at ringside has has been granted sentience and flies into the ring and attacks Slick Johnson. Wait, no, it was actually the cat. He slid a chair in with such force that it knocked Slick Johnson out of the counting sequence. The franchise grabs the chair. And despite his excessive years spent in the extreme wars of sports entertainment, he holds the chair dangerously close to his own face. And holy shit! A cartwheel Van Catenator out of nowhere. Jeff Jarrett applies the academic stroke. One, two, three. And still, heavyweight champion of the world, the Choden one, Jeff Jarrett. This match was extremely short. I think less than even three minutes. It was harmless, but not super entertaining. So I give it one unobservant sports entertainer. Tonacy, Tonacy, Tony promises us a sit-down interview with Diamond Dallas Page as we head to commercial. And folks, before we do, though, we get a wonderful clip where we see DDP refer to himself as Page Falkenberger. So, stay tuned. It's sure to be an extreme expose. Back in the arena now, returning from commercial with some crowd coverage as Mike Tenay sets up his interview by telling us that despite what Kimberly says, DDP is not actually in jail. And earlier today, he conducted a sit-down interview with the embattled sportsman. We cut to the interview stage, which again is just a tarp of beigeness. And uh, Mike Tenay, in his Sunday best, across from DDP in his Sunday best. (laughs) Mike Tenay reiterates, as he is known to do, that Diamond Dallas Page's life has recently turned to shit because of Eric Bischoff. He asked DDP to explain his relationship with one half of the dynamic duo. And DDP is all like, you know, the first time, that's really Hulk Hogan sounding, he's like, the first time I met Eric Bischoff, I wanted to rip his head off. But as time went on, we became neighbors and close friends. Mike Tenay wonders if DDP is aware that Eric Bischoff claims to have made DDP. But DDP laughs at this and says, Paige Falkenberg, I'm not sure who that is, works five times harder because he was Eric Bischoff's friend. You know, he had to prove that he could do it without him. Well, Paige, I ask then, what destroyed your friendship? I don't know. Bitterness? When he left WCW, he was bitter. And, you know, I called him a lot. And I'm the guy who's not going to be the one that doesn't call. And, you know, he never called me back. And it's like, you know what, DDP? Is a phone call from you really that cool that someone has to call you back? Today says, your book is about yo-yos and the storybook romance with Kimberly. Now, resulting in a divorce and a restraining order. What do you think she's thinking? I don't know. Is she thinking? Oh, come on, Paige. Like, being your wife is so cool that it's insane to think that possibly it wouldn't be the desirable scenario for someone. Does any guy see it coming, though? 
I don't know, fame does funny things. Bischoff's a cool guy and everything, but not in business. A beat passes in this interview with a with a, 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 a small moment of silence. Then Mike today asks another question, but I notice his tone is a little bit quieter, and it makes me uncomfortable because of the nature of the question he asks. He says, let's talk about Kimberly some more. And I'm like, whoa, Mike, what sort of salacious details are you looking for? But he says, do you still love her? Paige's response, duh, of course I do, but I don't love this chick. I love the chick I was with before. Well, DDP, really think about what it is you just said and wonder why the chick doesn't want to be around you. Well, speaking of different animals, that's a deep transition pull. The book is called Positively Page, but all I get is negative vibes from you. Well, you know, if you read the book, monkey, sometimes I got to play with my yo-yo and skim it across the bottom before I'm able to bounce back up. People in the locker room say you may never bounce back. Listen, Professor Poindexter, I'm motivated when people doubt me. That's how I thrive. Now, Tanae says there is more to this equation than just Kimberly and Eric Bischoff. At Slamboree, in the Triple Cage, David Arquette blames him, that being DDP, for holding Arquette back from pursuing his wrestling dreams. A what dream, monkey? It was a fluke. It was fun. He got to beat Bischoff, and he'd be champ for a day. You know, I've been that champ for a day, so whatever. That's all he needed. What about Canyon? Don't call that Jagoff a career killer, talking about Mike Awesome. Canyon's got heart, and nothing's going to keep him from walking again or wrestling again. So, it's a fact, DDP, science denier. Considering all these people turning on you, have you ever considered that you're the problem? At this moment, DDP rips the microphone off of his uh, collar tosses it squarely in the face of the professor. Tanae sits up in his chair and stares with intensity as we end the interview. Backstage, Mean Gene is with the cat, who is with Perfection and Chuck Palumbo. What was Vince Russo thinking leaving you in charge? Wait a minute, it's a hell of a show tonight, so enough of you, old man. Chronic, running around breaking the rules, I'm the boss now. So Chronic, I'm going to enforce the DQ rule. Tag match tonight with DQ title changes. <laughs> the franchise runs in and wants to know what the hell's going on. What was this all about? How could you do this to me? And the cat says plainly, the devil made me do it. I got orders. <laughs> Which is just fucking fantastic that the cat is self-aware enough to know that Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff are the devil. But he's more than happy for this, uh, you know, arrangement that he's made with them for power. Tony Schiavone promises that coming up soon, a clandestine update. But backstage in the training area, Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash are engaging in some freest, some freest, some freak assisted training. As Kevin Nash rides the bike with a freak bouncing with him, and uh, Scott Steiner does the elliptical machine with one of the freaks giving him the greatest view in the history of our sport. No time for sexual shenanigans, because here comes our next contest. Perfection and Chuck Palumbo come down the aisle with a Lex Flexer. And then, Chronic. Mike Tanay explains that during the wars of sports entertainment in WCW, the disqualification rule has been relaxed, but it's back for this contest, 
And if Chronic is disqualified, it's now a condition for losing the WCW Tag Team Championships. And so, in match number four for the WCW Tag Team Championship belt straps, Perfection and Chuck Palumbo defeat Chronic to become the new Tag Team Champions via the Butterfinger Blizzard. As we begin our match, there's a unique sign in the audience that says Chronic is the tonic for what ails you. And it's written on blue, and it's held by some blue hands. And that's not a fucking joke. They look like, it looks like someone is wearing, like, Doctor Strange's gloves, but they're all blue. But then, I zoom in, and it looks like it might be body paint. So is this, perhaps, Blue Man Group member Tobias Funke? Or, perhaps, the master of all existence, Dr. Manhattan? I don't know, and I'll never find out the answers, but it is... A bit insane, because this glass, this glass, this sign features like a martini glass, and Chronic might be a tonic, but their tag team name is a reference to weed, not alcohol. I just don't understand this sign, but someone in Boise put their heart into it, and I decided to mention it on commentary. As the match begins, though, Bobby the Brain Heenan brings back another old classic, indicating that this weekend... He's going to be on 790 AM in Atlanta. And everyone's been talking about Goldberg. In the airport, they stop. Let's talk about Goldberg. In the restaurants, let's talk about Goldberg. In the men's room, let's talk about Goldberg. And you know what, Bobby? At least you're fucking trying. The first big spot in the match involves Brian Crush being lazy and letting gravity do most of the work for him. But it is kind of cool. So Brian Crush has Perfect Sean up in the military press position. He simply drops him and crouches his knee, and it's a pretty sick, like, good gut-wrenched military driver. Yeah, the gut-wrenched military driver. Uh, but Perfect Sean is clearly in pain, and I can't be clear if it's the character or the man, but either way, I'm going to allow it. And the announcers keep talking about the DQ rules, and Tony sort of reiterates what's going on, even though today iterated it in the beginning so Tony Schiavone claiming the role of restater for this match I suppose but all this talk of DQ has me thinking about recent developments in my own life and folks I'm going to go out on a limb and recommend the DQ Butterfinger Blizzard throughout my youth I rejected the Butterfinger Blizzard because I didn't want crispy and crunchy candy mixed with my soft serve ice cream but as I said recently I engaged in doing battle with the Butterfinger Blizzard. I was victorious. And I can tell you that the candy pieces don't remain so crispy and crunchy when mixed with the ice cream. It's a perfect mix of ice cream and candy and delivers a satisfying treat. The match is so exciting that Tony calls out Mike on commentary, indicating that the last question he had for DDP was kind of a dick move. And I think this is funny, but today the character stands behind his journalistic integrity. Next big point in the match revolves around Brian Baum and Chuck Palumbo as the future as the feature performers. Tony calls Chuck Palumbo during this sequence Palumbi. I thought that was pretty funny. Bobby's like, it doesn't matter what you call the man, at least he's gotten rid of his trench coat. I'm confused. Cause 
Sean O'Hare has the trench coat, and he's not even here yet. But Mike today clarifies by chiming in that that's Columbo. And Bobby's like, it's not. It's Columbo. It's Palumbo. And so this sort of Columbo-Palumbo minor comedy continues. Tony eventually chimes in and indicates to the audience that Columbo was a TV show that aired before most of you watching were born. So at least he is in tune with the core audience. But now that I'm thinking about it, Tony, don't be afraid to lean into this Columbo reference. After all, the WCW TBS audience is the audience that's love that loves the Beastmaster. So they might enjoy the shenanigans of the somewhat overweight private dick known as Columbo. But back in the match, Brian Baum steals a move from his chronic partner, which I would you know, agree is something you usually end up doing with your chronic partner, whether you want to or not. Maybe he steals a little from you, you steal a little from him, but in the end, everyone has a good time. But Brian Baum steals Crush's signature Tilt-A-Whirl Backbreaker, and that move is reserved only for Crush because it originally appears in the fantastic video game WWF WrestleFest, which I will continue to mention in every match involving Chronic because my contract with the Aqua Cave demands it. During the spot where both legal competitors in the ring are down, the announcers take the opportunity to use this break in the action to start talking about rookie sensation G.I. Bro. They've indicated that they've learned during his short tenure here in the wars of sports entertainment that he's not a force to be taken lightly. I should point out that while I've used this match mostly for humorous purposes, and I'm using the finger quotes because you may or may not find it humorous, but it's really not a bad match. You know, there's some pretty cool power spots here, and they're not exactly telling like a cohesive story, but it's it's decent enough. I, I honestly have no problems with it, and I am pretty hard on these guys, and, and, and it's not bad. You know, I kind of get an Acolytes vibe from Chronic. You know that the matches aren't going to be like Tokyo Dome classics, but they're going to go out there and kick the shit out of somebody, and it's a coin flip. They're either really going to take the opportunity to kick the shit out of someone in a sports entertainment way, or they're going to just go out there and kick the shit out of somebody because they're chronic and they're not safe to work with. Perfection, even though he's the heel, eventually gets a hot tag, and he's all fists of fire and fury. Tony Schiavone mentions that this is actually his hometown. So finally, we have an explanation for why Perfection is so fucking bland. Speaking of hometowns, Tony, don't forget, Goldberg is going to be live this Monday in his hometown of Atlanta. Fucking Mike Tanay. Which I guess, if that's the thing you're going to hype, you're going to hype it. But he again steals and sort of reiterates what someone else says. I will say this about Perfection, though. Uh, He appears to be a decently tough bastard. Alright? Because he whips... Brian Crush into the ropes and lowers his head, uh, trusting Brian Crush to do this maneuver safely. And he probably shouldn't have, because Brian Crush counters with possibly the most dangerous pile driver I have ever seen in the history of this sport. It's truly sloppy, and the man should at the very least have his Idaho wrestling license revoked. Brian Crush then makes his own version of a hot tag, to the bombster. Tony indicates that the tag is made to the fresh man, Brian Clark. However, in a brilliant move, the closed captioning refers to him as Freshman Brian Clark, 
which is one that I'll be using as ongoing shtick here in WCW Must Die. Everything begins to break down, and Chronic, in a pretty decent move, again, performs a double-team toss of Palumbo or Columbo, the jury's still out on that, over the top rope, and he flips and takes a solid back bump square on the entrance ramp. And it looks pretty cool, and again solidifies that Chronic, if nothing else, are a world-beating tag team. The bad boys of Blunts hit the high time on Perfection, and this is the finish. But it is ridiculously ill-timed, so I'll break it down in greater detail. So the finish is supposed to be, uh, you know, Brian Clark goes for the cover after the high times, and Brian Adams hits Palumbo with the Lex Flexor before the three count. But, like I said, it's ill-timed. So the referee makes the count. One, two, and then Chuck Palumbo enters with the Lex Flexor, and Crush takes it from him and hits him with it. But the referee, because it's ill-timed, has to break his count and sort of watch them do this. So, whatever. I don't know. Eventually, though, we have new tag team champions because the bell rings because of disqualification using a foreign object. And you know, Chronic, you got to give them the benefit of the doubt, though, folks. They just got caught up in the passion of the moment and made a mistake. But they are a rookie tag team. They are merely freshmen, and we can't hold it against them. I notice also another hilarious closed captioning botch that indicates that Chronic was distracted because Brian Adams used the Lex Flexor to hit Columbo. Or Palumbo, excuse me. That's not the botch, though. The botch is that instead of Lex Flexor, the closed captioning indicates they used Lex Fletcher. Two words, both capitalized. Clearly the first name and the surname of a gentleman that will now become an ongoing WCW Must Die character. I've just got to find a spot to incorporate him. He kind of sounds like an old-timey businessman. Hello, this is Lex Fletcher, and I'm here to purchase WCW. After all, I have a lot of money because I'm old-timey businessman Lex Fletcher. See? There you go. I told you I could. To put the icing on the cake, Chronic delivers the high times yet again, but this time it's to referee Jonathan slash Billy Silverman, thus indicating another weekend at Bernie's is indeed ruined. Chronic, it's Andrew McCarthy, and ruined it. We were going to have a fantastic weekend at Bernie's, and now there's no weekend at Bernie's. Come on, Chronic, what are you thinking? What are you thinking, gay Chronic? But like I said, the match wasn't terrible. It's honestly baseline, you know, your, your typical two and a half. But, but, but... It's Chronic and a couple of power plant guys, so I'm going to deduct a little bit from it and give it two incredibly dangerous professional wrestling maneuvers. We get a small moment of hype for the upcoming clandestine interview with Eric Bischoff as we head to commercial. We are back from commercial fans, and my God in heaven, we are in a backyard. In this backyard is a group of young children. These young children have erected a makeshift wrestling ring. And there are two children in this ring having a match, and the audience is bloodthirsty. (laughs) These children want to see decimation. My God! Is this the WCW power plant? Is that why I couldn't find it? Is it secretly in Idaho? 
Is this the level of athlete we're dealing with at the WCW Power Plant circa 2022? No time for this, though, because Norman Smiley and Ralphus enter the backyard. Norman says, and this is verbatim, well, 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 what do we have here? To make matters work worse, folks, upon further review, the makeshift ring is a mattress. You know, like a bed where you lay and sleep and do other things. He asked the children if they know who he is. And then in the absolute best line delivery of the night, a young child says, yeah, you're Booker T. (laughs) And Norman says, Booker T, can't you read the shirt? Norman then asks the most relevant question in the history of WCW Must Die and perhaps all of existence when he looks at the wrestling match and says, what is this, pro wrestling? A question we probably all ask ourselves when we press play on WCW Must Die. He then pivots, though, to warning these children against the dangers of backyard wrestling. And so we might just be having a nice, honest, earnest, the more you know moment. He says to the children, if you want to be a pro, you have to start as an amateur. And he has extensive he has an extensive amateur background. He then looks around at the group of children and says, Who's the champion? A young child raises his arm and says, I am. It is indeed a young boy wearing cargo shorts and a wife beater. He has a belt over his shoulder. It looks like it may be made of cardboard and tinfoil, but it is shiny. And he wears this belt over his shoulder. Norman makes eye contact with the boy. And in order to speak with him, pushes a young girl out of his way. Norman says, how long have you been wrestling? Two months. Norman then starts to touch the boy's arm and hands in a rubbing motion. I am only here to report to you what I witnessed on my television screen, fans. Don't attack the messenger. He says, much like legendary journalist Art Donovan, How much do you weigh? The child responds, 130. You lift weights? Yes, sir. Just my speed. Go ahead and get in the ring. I'm going to show you kids a clinic today. I'm going to put some locks and holds on my friend Shooter. So, the young boy is named Shooter. Shooter! Hey, Sizzler, hey, Shooter, you want to go to the Sizzler? <laughs> I almost said, hey, Sizzler, you want to go to the Shooter? All right, I can't laugh. This young boy is clearly in danger. Norman asks the boy, who I remind you is unable to legally consent to anything in any state in this country to get in the referee's position. Now, folks, if you're not familiar with the referee's position, it's an amateur wrestling-style position where there's a break in the action uh, due to perhaps a rule violation, uh, blood time, ooh, blood time, uh, someone goes out of bounds, and the person that is responsible for the infraction gets down on their hands and knees, basically, and the person who was in control when the infraction was incurred uh, sort of gets into a position where they're mounting them. There's probably a more scientific way to present it, but in order to get across my point, 
I'm simply going to say Norman Smiley mounts the young boy. And that's a sentence I never knew I wanted to deliver. (laughs) And I don't necessarily want to, but I have to. Mind you, I have to deliver this information to you. I feel like Ron Burgundy when he pushes the innocent civilian aside and yells, I've got to deliver the news! Uh, Shooter abides and gets into position. Norman mounts the boy and says, Quote, This is the first day of the rest of your life. Now, kids, my hand goes around his stomach. Norman does indeed wrap his large hands around the boy's stomach and says, I can feel the butterflies already. (laughs) My God. I'm going to drive my opponent into the mat. Ready, shooter? Yes, sir. Norman then reaches below the boy's anus and does an ankle pick. The visual on our TV screens is shooter with his face dug into the mattress going, eh, eh, and Norman is mounted behind the boy and ramming the knee into his back. The audience gasps and goes, oh, that being the children watching. But the kids are not professional SAG actors, and their reaction that should be, oh, actually sounds more like an audience reacting to a couple's first on-screen kiss. And it sounds like this, and I'm not kidding. Norman yells at the young boy struggling against his larger frame and yells, fight it, fight it. He then lets the boy up and asks the children watching, how do you like that? Norman then calls Shooter, Honey, and says, Honey, I'm going to prepare you for the next lesson. It's called a crossface. My God, a crossface. Are you ready, Shooter? Ready. The sequence begins, and both man and child make this noise. (laughs) Norman has indeed... (laughs) Clinched in the hold. He yells, Yeah, punk! Yeah! Yeah, punk! Fight it! Yeah! Yeah! He asks the children if they know the best part about the clinic that he's showing them. It's a free clinic! A young girl yells, My favorite prize! (laughs) Oh, God! A three-quarter Nelson is next. Shooter takes the move. Norman yells, Rufus, count it! And Ralphus springs into position and counts one, two, three. Norman shoots right up, celebrates, and does the big wiggle. This was a cunning ruse, a distraction. Norman grabs the young child's championship belt. And Norman and Ralphus escape and run for freedom. The children give chase. And this segment ends. So yes, folks, it's okay because Norman and Ralphus just wanted to grab these children's makeshift championship belt to see if they could pawn it. Now, folks, I don't mind telling you, as Mean Gene would say, clearly the person that wrote this segment knew what they were doing. I'm not going to go into any further detail, but this was clearly written to elicit a certain response and pop the boys in the back. They're lucky they didn't pop a call from Child Protection Services. Moving on. We cut right to the clandestine interview that will change the face of sports entertainment for at least the next week. It's Tony and Eric on the exact same set that DDP 
and uh, fucking Mike Tanay were on. But now a makeshift cardboard WCW logo is hanging, and there's an end table with a couple of glasses of water. Uh, I suppose they did this because the interviews allegedly took place on different days, but folks, we can all smell what you're cooking. I'm going to summarize this interview uh, the best way that I can. All right? So, <laughs> and I'll just, you know, I don't even have to tell you who says it. You know the impressions. Eric, so much has changed since you and Russo took creative control of WCW programs. All right, let me, let me stop you right there. We didn't take creative control of programming, all right? We took control of WCW. Okay, let's talk about the night that you weren't there. Two weeks ago on Thunder, when you were <laughs> at a clandestine meeting that would change the face of sports entertainment forever. They're talking about WCW Must Die Episode 13, The Brunch Association. Again! Available exclusively on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. The night Shane Douglas was in charge. Eric, I want to know about the meeting. No, 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 no. Let's talk about WCW and Eric Bischoff, okay? Okay, let's talk about that. I made WCW number one by making big changes and taking big risks. And now I'm back, and I'm better than ever. I've got a knack for making things better. Face facts. Your opinion don't matter. This maniac is going to stomp on whomever. Now I'm with Russo, and you all thought that was a big move. Eric. What about the meeting that took place in California? Well, it was big. There were attorneys, and notaries, and attorneys for the attorneys, and attorneys for the notaries. But the point is, the deal is done. At 11 a.m. today, it was signed, sealed, delivered. There can be no injunctions filed, and it can't be stopped. And it'll happen at the Great American Bash. You know, Eric... Sports entertainment is a lot of hype. On WCW Live, Monday night on WCW.com, Vince Russo said this would be the single biggest thing to ever happen to sports entertainment. Bigger than WCW or the WWF, and bigger than the events that took place on April 10th. The Great American Bash, we're changing the landscape of sports entertainment and wrestling. And there's nothing that you or Vince McMahon, or anyone, can do about it. Now, you're boring me. I got better things to do. And the interview ends. Next, on this amazing episode of Thunder, it's father and son versus father and son. The couples walk to the arena towards their destiny as Vince Russo yells, Yeah, I'm in the zone, baby! We return from commercial to what will undoubtedly go down as one of the greatest moments in the history of all sports. See, you thought I was going to say our sport. (laughs) Uh, David and Vince come down the aisle. And as they do, Tony Schiavone says, and I quote, We do not condone young men and women wrestling in the backyard. Bobby reminds us that if we have a problem with backyard wrestling... To brain to play to brain to blame the parents, not the kids. And Tony's like, those are wise words, brain. And Bobby's like, yeah, the parents should spring every once in a while and buy a ticket to the show. Those bunch of deadbeats. <laughs> yeah. 
The Flare Boys arrive in full force with pyrotechnics. This is a wasted opportunity because Reed Flare is only wearing, like, gym clothes. And it's a wasted opportunity to not, you know, give him his own, like, nature boy uh, robe and presentation, right? But the Flares use their body language to indicate they offer their full support for the WWE's Saudi Arabia expansion-based pay-per-views as they force Beth Fleer to walk many paces behind them. The announcers put over Reed's background. Rick enters, and the bell rings. So, match five. Vince Russo and David Flair defeat Rick Flair and Reed Fleer via teamwork. Now, Rick immediately starts working David over with some chops. And as Rick beats on his own son, Bobby the Brain Heenan offers these wide, wise words. Father knows best! Rick takes his attention off David to pursue Vincent Russo in the corner, but Russo flees the scene. This is a sad situation, Bobby the Brain says under his breath. Rick Flair now somehow has a microphone, and as Russo... <laughs> I can't even, this is... I love this. He he gets on the microphone and he says, Russo, get in the ring. You got any of these? And then he grabs his own testicles. Rick says, what did I tell you? You can't beat me. He then mockingly points at his own young son in the corner and says, Russo, you couldn't even beat him, you pissant. Woo. Now Russo sells these unkind words with sadness on his face as if Rick's really made him feel less than. Rick offers Russo a compromise. He will offer him his young son for three minutes, while he, that being Rick, watches from the ramp. And if Rick interferes, he'll retire tonight. So, when you compound this upon what we saw with Norman and the young shooter, we now have legendary sports entertainer Ric Flair offering an older, much hairier man his young boy, for approximately 180 seconds. As if to further amplify my misguided view of this scenario, Vince Russo responds with a very large, Grinch-esque slash Tim Curry Home Alone 2 style smile on his face. Before talking, before talking, before tossing Russo the microphone, Rick offers him one final word of encouragement. Come on, show me, buddy. And then he thrusts his crotch towards Russo again and tosses him the microphone. Russo fumbles the catch, but uh, allegedly, how was it allegedly? But finally offers this response: "Give me that little bastard!" And here we go, folks. Hold on to your seats. This one's going to explode. Tanae ruins. This pivotal moment in the history of sports entertainment by screaming at the top of his lungs, Russo wants a 12-year-old! It's man against boy, Bobby the Brain offers. Look at the difference in size, says today. Seriously, are these all scripted ahead of time? Like, what the fuck is going on? Am I insane? Or, I mean, right? Right? It's there. They, they've said all the right words when they need to to infer the nastiness. Now, I'm not saying this with enthusiasm as a loving response. It's just, I'm blown away. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely blown away. 
Like, how does this not go down in history as, like, one of the most uh, known, mo- like, episodes of professional wrestling for its ridiculous undertones? It's like, you know, and this is not a ridiculous undertone. I'm not saying that. Uh, not It is what they're doing, but my example. So, people have seen A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, right? Well, the, the undertones to that film are, it's a story about a young man coming out and accepting himself, okay? Now, that is not ridiculous, and that's not what have you, okay? That's actually, it's actually pretty cool, and and I definitely recommend watching it knowing that, and it's not, I mean, the movie's not good, but knowing what they're going for, it's actually pretty fucking, you know, cool. Like, they went for it, man. Like, good for you. Do something with your art. (laughs) On the complete flip side of that, the undertones of this episode are clear, right? Right? Russo and the Reedster circle one another, and Reed shoots the half. Russo takes a back bump. However, it's clear to anyone watching that the bump was not caused by the contact between man and boy. At this moment, Ric Flair can be seen in the background, performing what I can only call an interpretive dance of celebration. These moves of celebration transition into the Flair strut. If life were a video game... This would absolutely be Ric Flair's celebratory pose. Like, if you're in the fighting game, and Ric Flair gets the victory, and the announcer's like, You win! Ric Flair does this dance. Round two. Fight! I mean, that's what would happen next, right? Because then you cut to round two. Russo has removed his coat, though, as if to say, Now, things are getting serious. He runs at Reed. Reed hits a single leg, and rather than fall backwards with some sense of realism, Russo decides to pull the old Kurt Henning slash Shawn Michaels, jumps into the air, and spins before pumping. He goes to David for some wise words. He turns around and promptly gets harpooned by the Reedster. At this moment, Ric Flair runs in and takes a comically large step over Vince Russo's fallen form. You know, like, he, you know, he doesn't just, like, run over and, like, jump over. He, like, he gets to the point where he could just take another little step and then you know, just take a normal size step and mount him, but he decides to take the mounting step early, and it's a ridiculous overstepping. But now we've got a scenario where Ric Flair is on uh, top of Russo delivering uh, mounted punches. Has it been three minutes? Says Mike today. Good enough for me! Offers Tony, but David rescues his father with some chops. David is now in control and hits a suplex. Rick sells this suplex like he's in minute 56 of a Steamboat Classic. Flair comes back now and tosses David on the outside. He gives chase and Tony offers, What an exciting time to be a fan of sports entertainment! Flair then circles to to chase Russo. But Russo has a Statue of Liberty and it absolutely explodes over the face of the 16-time legendary world champion. Vince Russo tosses Ric Flair into the ring. David Flair delivers some stomps. Reed attempts to save David, and David pushes him away. This happens once again. And this happens once again. David! (laughs) Oh, David! David then performs an Irish whip on Reed. Reed tries his hardest to make this feasible, but ultimately fails. Russo, though, trips him as he bounces into the ropes, and Reed absolutely falls flat on his face. Cut to Beth Fleer, who is both fearful and chilly. David then puts the figure four on his young brother. Russo then covers Reed in a mounted position, and much like future 
hired gun of the new blood, the thug life. Vince Russo sticks out his tongue and... You know, that thing. As Charles Robinson counts the one, two, three. Vince Russo jumps into David Arms as if a couple reunited after surviving a terrible crash into an iceberg or a bombing of Pearl Harbor or other movies that came out when I was a kid that featured historic events. And the love is real. You can feel it. Beth enters and covers her wounded pup. Vince Russo grabs a mic. He yells at Beth, You believe me now, or are you going to wait until it's too late? He's trying to help her, offers Bobby the Braid Heat into the confused viewers. Beth ponders her own future as we head to commercial. Folks, absolutely five fucking stars. Do not miss it. We're back from commercial, and Mean Gene is with Ric Flair. Ric Flair is unamused about the preceding events, so he goes into uh, Ric Flair insane promo mode, okay? And he says, Russo! It ends Monday night. I'm going to get Ted Turner on the phone. Don't think I can't get Ted Turner on the phone. Even if i got to get the governor of North Carolina. Woo! I want Fitz Russo in a cage on Nitro. He then rips a small adhesive strip from his forehead, all right? And you can see there's, like, nothing going on here. But he's like, blood! And then he punches the skull. You want blood? Yeah, I'll bleed. Woo! Rick is really, really desperate for attention and hoping that the uh, Marks will be excited to hear that Ric Flair is going to bleed on Nitro. I'll bleed! You'll bleed! I'll sweat! You'll sweat! Now he's just singing lyrics to allegedly an early 90s dance song it, it sounds like it one's about to start come on you'll bleed you'll sweat and we'll dance and then everything goes in the trance back in my hotel room that night we ain't gonna fight you know like something like that kind of sounded like the lonely island there for a second not not that i would dare compare myself okay that's what i'm saying but it's like last night i saw a film as i recall it was a horror film i think that's the beat that i was using in my head when i was singing oh my god it'll happen on monday Woo! Now out comes the cat, and he's blowing kisses. He is very proud of this night's uh, transgressions. And holy shit, he's joining the commentary team. I can't fucking wait when all of a sudden a rap song starts. See, I can't howl because for some strange reason there was no... Oh, look, I got it in anyway. Before the Wolfpack theme started. But out come the Deadly Alliance themselves, large, attractive Kevin Nash and Big Papa Pump. Scott Steiner. Bobby the Brain Heenan tells the cat what a good job he's doing running the show. And the cat says, that's fantastic. I'm going to give you a raise. (laughs) And then he promises Tony Schiavone enough money that even he can afford a new hairpiece. Tank Abbott's music hits, but the announcers start talking like, wait, is it Goldberg? But it's clearly just Tank Abbott's music. Um, But it is indeed... uh, Tankberg, if you will. Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner coming out to the, in quotations mark, in quotation marks, goodness, it's one of those days, folks, uh, to the Goldberg music. <laughs> okay, the cat delivers a fucking fantastic line. I was trying not to laugh when I say it. The cat says, you thought I was a bad fighter. Now you see my leadership skills. And Bobby's like, oh, I agree. You should run TBS. We could call it the Brain Station. And when he says this, the cat 
our Lord and Savior, Ernest Miller, legitimately pops and, like, just starts laughing in the headset. And you know what? It's really nice to see Bobby fired up with some sort of enthusiasm because he's got someone that can play off of him. You know, I don't know. It's just... It's really nice to hear. It doesn't... I mean, there's a little bit of it during this match, and that's fun. I don't know how much of the weeds I'll get into it, but good for you, Bob. That shit fucking makes me smile. The cat promises that he's going to make a big announcement during this match. But then, the bell rings. And so, match six. The Deadly Alliance. Wait! The cat is going to make his announcement right now? But the Deadly Alliance continues to wrestle this matchup and what am i supposed to do as the humble cast of wcw must die i can't talk about what happened in the match without first giving the results and has anyone ever wondered why i do that it's because i know as a host i get so sidetracked sometimes delivering what happened during the body of a match i want to make sure you at least know who won up front lest it get lost during the proceedings but the cat is able to make his announcement. <laughs> Lost my place there, folks. The cat's able to make his announcement because the Deadly Alliance, uh, being the good good guys that they are, or being the upstanding, there we go, you, you take two, using the upstanding good guys that they are, they throw the bad guys out of the ring so we can listen to the cat. He says, the winner of the match gets the title shot at the Great American Bash. I'm the boss. What a show. <laughs> and then he goes back to fulfill his commentary duties. But back to my announcing duties... It's a tag match. The plot thickens. What am I supposed to do with... Okay, I've got it. Match six. Kevin Nash defeats Scott Steiner, Tank Abbott, and Rick Steiner to become the number one contender for the WCW heavyweight belt strap via the Deadly Alliance defeats Tank Abbott and Rick Steiner. So you see there, Kevin Nash wins the contendership because the tag team beats the tag. Yeah, man. That's how you do it. All right, let's get lost. Uh, You've put partner against partner, Cat. Man, I don't care. Rick and Scott Steiner begin the contest, and they're really boring, and I'm feeling absolutely nothing about them being in the ring together fighting. So the bloom is off that rose, if it ever indeed bloom. We cut to Jeff Jarrett in the back for some reason, and he's like, oh, no, there ain't going to be no pinfall, but there will be a disqualification. Now, he is he's not talking to anyone. He's talking to himself, right? Um, but, and, and that's okay. Sometimes you talk to yourself, all right? And especially when you're laying out a diabolical plan. But here's what you don't do to yourself. You don't do your cut the air taunt when no one else is around. Because as he says, there will be a DQ. He does that cut the air thing. We've talked about it before. You know, I don't know how to describe it, but you know what I'm talking about. Then he grabs his guitar and heads somewhere. We don't know at this time where. Tony Schiavone says, boss, did you hear that? Man, I'm not worried about him. I'm also a great fighter, which is so fucking true. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get word that Vince Russo accepts the steel cage confrontation for Nitro. Scott is now in a chin lock. Or, I'm sorry, Scott is in a, <laughs> Scott is in a chin lock that Rick has him in. But Scott is selling this chin lock as if he has just been through two War Games matches. And we are like 90 seconds in to a blow-off tag team match on a random thunder that contained a horse match. That's right, I called it a horse match. But Scott Steiner, I suppose, is committed to his craft. Uh, Tank is now in, so the talk turns to Goldberg. But after he throws, like, a punch, he tags right out. But they still talk about Goldberg. Scott Steiner is indeed the face in peril, but a hot tag 
cleans house. Now, Nash is primarily focusing on Rick Steiner, and he gets Rick Steiner on the ropes, like facing outward, like a 619 position. Okay? Now, Nash goes against the Irish Whips himself against the opposite rope, but here's the problem, folks. Tank Abbott, the human being, is standing right there. Uh, but Tank Abbott, the character, is also standing right there. Tank Abbott, the character, should not let Kevin Nash whip himself off the ropes to gain momentum to advance his jumping strike. But Tank Abbott, the person, doesn't understand that he's a character and he just watches the proceedings happen. Kevin Nash does indeed do his Nash jumping other guys on the rope thing that the big boss man did. And the big boss man did it better and it looked cooler. But eventually, because of this strike, it is now just Nash and the aforementioned Tank Abbott character. Portrayed by Tank Abbott, the actor. Don't get lost. But Rick Steiner trips Kevin Nash. But Scott Snyder sneaks up on Tank and locks him in the Steiner recliner. But here comes Jeff Jarrett, not to cut the air, but to cut a... Well, I was going to say, but to cut a promo, but he's not. Fucks. You know what, guys? I'm just going to race through it right to the end. Because this show... Has been so much fun, but wow. Anyway, he hits Steiner with the guitar. Now, Slick Johnson doesn't know if he should ring the bell or not. I know this because the camera's right on him and he's looking confused. Thank God, though, Slick Johnson, the character, is confused. Uh, because the cat has told him, you know, they're, the, the winner by pinfall or submission gets the shot, but he has to call for a DQ. And the cat, you can hear him on the microphone, you know, because he's doing commentary. And he's all like, no bell, no bell. So, there is no bell. It's chaos now. Rick Steiner hits Kevin Nash with the belt. The freaks are in the ring for some reason. But they're just here to roll Scott Steiner out of the ring so the finish can happen. I thought they were going to get involved. I got excited there for a second. Uh, Jeff Jarrett tosses Rick Steiner a chair. And even though Rick Steiner spent a brief period engaged and embattled in the extreme wars of sports entertainment, he holds the chair dangerously close to his own face. And Kevin Dash hits a Van Sexinator. Jackknife. One, two, three. Kevin Nash is going to the bash. That rhymes. The match was awful. I give it one financial raise for Bobby the Brain Heenan. Tony Schiavone screams, Goldberg returns on Nitro! And we end our scene. Now, as I had mentioned earlier... This show was absolutely crazy, okay? We all know that. You listen to the show. You know how batshit wild it was. But here's what I find interesting about it, and I'm going to put the serious hat on for the big finale since we were so goofy during the whole show. Who would have thunk it? This concept, this show is very interesting to me because I know that Russo has put out into the ether, whether it's through his social media, some sort of shoot interview, or just it's something I'm, I've picked up through osmosis. I, I can't cite my source and uh, I'm not going to go digging for my source because what if I'm wrong? But I think I'm right. Russo's often talked about or hypothesized that the, the worst part about professional wrestling is the wrestling. And in a weird way, no, I don't agree with him. But here's the thing. I, I like the outside of the ring shenanigans. I do. Clearly, I do this show. But it's so interesting to me that this sort of episode of Thunder acts as sort of a mini thesis for that idea. Now, there is wrestling. There's six matches, actually, when you really tally it up. But there really is a, after the stable match, which, yes, I say jokingly, but after that hardcore title match, there's a very long stretch without wrestling. There's backstage interviews, in-the-ring interviews, um, pre-taped interviews, 
uh, storyline altercations that happen backstage that aren't really interviews where there's not like a person present with a microphone. So it's interesting to me. Um, obviously, year 2000, WCW is not, not, you don't have the stable of talent to do something like that, okay? But I don't know. It's really interesting. And, and, and you t- like, I just listened to uh, over on North South, again, cheap plug for them, but they deserve it. Like, I was listening to the Warzone, and uh, JT, Marcus, and Chad were talking about the episode of Nitro where the NWO takes over the show. And, like, that's a classic episode of weekly wrestling television. I- I'm not trying to say- please understand, I'm not a buffoon. Well, I am, but, like, I do this show for fun because I like making fun of it. And yes, I know that the hardcore title match is fucking pathetic and worth like nothing. And I gave it infinite stars in the cosmos. I do that for entertainment purposes. So please know that I'm not like saying that this is anything like that. Okay, I'm not. But that's sort of like, you know, once that happens in the show, that's like the concept of the rest of the episode. You know, there are concept episodes of wrestling. It's a whole night of a three-hour Raw with a beat-the-clock challenge. And I guess that's a concept, okay? That's your framing device. But Russo is really at least trying something here, and it's a failure, okay? But I do say that, you know, bravo in a sense that you tried it. It didn't work, and that's okay. Not everything does hit. And in a genre of entertainment like this, sometimes trying something different is going to be the hardest part. But speaking of the hardest part, did you have to lace it with all the man-boy love undertones? Or man, just child, doesn't matter. It, you know what, I don't want to say any more about it. The undertones were there. I brought it to your attention. And, uh, you know, there is no denying it. And with that in mind, if you feel that there's some sort of situation, like what we talked about here on Thunder, in your life that you need to fix, please visit childcare.gov or call 1-800-422-4453 for the Bureau of Child Protection Services, which is not a funny thing, but I feel like it's a good way to wrap up a comedy show about this episode of professional wrestling. Folks, thanks so much for stopping in the Aqua Cave once again. I want to get in a cheap plug for my new show, Starman, where I take Meltzer's list of the worst matches of all time and grab a handful of them in order. We're still in the negative 1.5 star matches. Uh, there's a couple episodes out there. They're a lot of fun. What we do is we take those matches to court. And I present evidence, just evidence, not personal thoughts, just what I witnessed. Well, they're personal thoughts, but not no shenanigans afoot. You know, if it's my favorite wrestler of all time, I'm not bringing that baggage. For example, I covered Hulk Hogan and Macho Man in a cage match that made me want to end it all. So I'm not biased. I just go by the evidence, and I make a ruling, guilty or not guilty, of Meltzer's ranking. And folks, my rulings don't get overturned. Yeah. Real fun time to be in America. And with that, let's press ever forward to the eventual day that WCW must die.